Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And welcome to First Move. I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley. And of course, we begin with the latest from Afghanistan. At least 12 people have reportedly been killed in and around Kabul's airport since Sunday. Reuters says the deaths were caused by either stampedes of people trying to get into the airport or gunshots in that area. Meantime, former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani, who's now in the UAE, has been trying to explain why he ultimately fled his home. I didn't want the bloodshed to commence in Kabul like it had in Syria and Yemen. So I decided to go to leave Kabul. Now, today, meantime, the Taliban say they defeated, quote, powerful and arrogant America in a statement celebrating Afghan independence from British colonial rule. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in Kabul, and she described the situation a short time ago. We spoke to someone who was at the airport earlier this morning. He said that the crowds are just astonishing. Huge, huge amounts of people in the hundreds, if not the thousands, desperately trying to push themselves into the airport, despite the best efforts of, uh, you know, all the various contingencies who are um, putting out protection in that area. They did also say, though, it's a little bit quieter, but that may have been on account of the fact that they went very early this morning. We were there all day yesterday as we were doing live shots from there. We're not trying to do that again today because it was such a chaotic situation. And at a couple of points, it was actually quite dangerous. Now, I do want to make the point that outside of the airport, it is calm in the capital. And the Taliban is really trying uh, to put on that show uh, for the international community and for the people of Afghanistan. Today is Ashura, which is a Shiite religious festival. Uh, They're making a big deal of how the Shiites are free to practice uh, this religious celebration on the streets and they're going to protect it. Uh, we've also seen a sort of flash protest or parade in support of Afghan Independence Day with a couple hundred people gathering in Kabul for a brief time holding up the Afghan flag. The Taliban are saying you can fly any flag that you want. But as we've seen already in other parts of the country, uh, taking down the Taliban flag, putting up the Afghan flag has been met with bullets and violence from Taliban fighters. So despite the best efforts of the Taliban's leadership to show a a more conciliatory face, you are still seeing that fear and you are still seeing that crush of people desperately trying to get out. You certainly are. And that was from our Clarissa Ward, CNN international security editor Nick Peyton Walsh now joins us. uh, And he's traveled from Kabul, from that airport, just in the last 24 hours. He joins us now from Doha, Qatar. Nick, tell us, what did you see? And it seems from what Clarissa has said that the situation might have gotten even worse since you went through. Yeah, I mean, it's utterly chaotic. A lot of the problem about this essentially stems from the belief, I think, for most inside the airport running the scheme, that there is some sort of orderly mechanism to get people on. Uh, and they appear to feel that they'll be able to sustain this for a matter of weeks to get the sort of 22,000 uh, Afghans that they say they want out of the country into a safe place. But 
Outside the airport, it is utter chaos, and there is a mixture of Taliban blocking access and Afghans themselves blocking access because of the sheer numbers of them trying to get through. Now, my access was on Tuesday afternoon uh, through the, an area to the north, um, and that was almost impossible owing to the fact that there were so many other Afghans, possibly American citizens too, waving their passports, trying to get close to a specific gate. Now, for the Marines guarding that gate, the task was impossible because you can't start picking people out of the crowd and agreeing to take them and allowing them to be lifted over the gate because you'll spark a rush of people trying the same. And then when you have unfiltered people trying to jump over the gate, essentially you have to find a way of stopping them. And that's the reason we hear the gunshots on the air. That's why we've heard reports of tear gas. And so it is an exceptionally difficult task to filter hundreds of desperate people particularly when along that road where I was, there are Taliban, when I was there, doing traffic control, trying to keep the traffic moving. But your major problem at the moment is going to be when they choose to start stopping people accessing all of the gates around the airport. That doesn't appear to have happened. They put a persistent presence up on the main airport road heading up towards there. And so this essentially comes down to the question haunting all these thousands of Afghans and American citizens and other citizens too that are trying to get onto the airport, which is, is there ever going to be some sort of negotiable mechanism for doing this that's calm, that manages the numbers effectively, that causes no panic, that causes no injury? And there isn't one at this stage and we don't necessarily seem to be having a diplomatic track that's racing towards that and so instead we have increasing numbers of people increasing numbers of panic and fear increasing desperation all of which adds to the chaos around the actual facility itself so it, once you're on the base frankly when i was there no problem getting on a plane a lot of the planes didn't have enough people uh it seems to have got larger in number on the base since i was there but it is simply getting onto the airport that is a, a staggering task paula yeah it sounds so harrowing and i'm sure nick as you point out it's not like you had a family depending on you when you were trying to get in there so just imagine all those afghan families with little ones in tow not knowing where their next meal uh, is going to come from as they're trying to get in there uh, not happy to hear as well that there were of course empty flights uh leaving or half empty flights leaving uh, nick uh, a really good perspective and appreciate your input there in the meantime, President Biden says U.S. forces will remain in Afghanistan until all Americans who want to leave the country are out. In an interview with ABC News, George Stephanopoulos uh, and ABC News, pardon me, the president also dismissed criticism of the ongoing U.S. military operations and pushed back on suggestions that he was getting flawed intelligence on Afghanistan. Listen. Back in July, you said a Taliban takeover was highly unlikely. Was the intelligence wrong or did you downplay it? I think uh, there was no consensus. If you go back and look at the intelligence reports, they said that it was like more likely to be sometime by the end of the year. You didn't put a timeline out when you said it was highly unlikely. You just said flat out it's highly unlikely the Taliban would take over. Yeah. Well, the question was whether or not it, what, the idea that the Taliban would take over was premised on the notion that the uh, somehow the 300,000 troops we had trained and equipped was going to just collapse. They were going to give up. I don't think anybody anticipated that. We've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? What I thought was we're, we have to gain control of this. We have to move this more quickly. We have to move in a way in which we can take control of that airport. And we did. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled 
better in any way? No mistakes? No, I, I, I don't think it could have been handled in a way that there, we, we're going to go back in hindsight and look. But the idea that somehow there's a way to have gotten out without chaos ensuing, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that happened. So for you, that was always priced into the decision? Yes. Hey, John Harwood joins me now from the White House. Uh, John, there seemed to be very little contrition there in that interview. And worse, the issue of accountability, he did say that the buck stops with him. And yet in that interview, not so much. He clearly wants Americans and the world, quite frankly, to accept that he could do no better. Well, look, uh, you didn't hear a lot of contrition because President Biden is not contrite. He has acknowledged that the uh, collapse of Afghan uh, government officials and security forces was faster than he thought, but he he hasn't uh, expanded upon that to explain uh, how he might have uh, accommodated that differently. That's the uh, defensiveness that he showed has probably hindered his ability to connect with the American people somewhat in terms of explaining what's happened. That being said, Uh, We have not had a widespread loss of life, 12 uh, fatalities that uh, Clarissa reported. uh, That's 12 too many, but it's not in the context of a large civil war, a huge number. And we have not had American casualties. So I think from President Biden's perspective, uh, this uh, withdrawal has not failed. Uh, It is still in front of him as he tries to uh, evacuate uh, more than 60,000 Afghan allies and American citizens. Uh, but that's going to the proof is going to be in the results of that. The American officials say 6,000 out so far. Uh, they're going to try to uh, sustain that for the next couple of weeks. And President Biden acknowledged that the American troops may stay to sustain that evacuation, at least for American citizens, beyond August 31st, if necessary. What's interesting here uh, is the fact that Biden has emerged weakened from this. And I don't have to tell you, John, you know what the allies have been saying behind the scenes and probably directly to uh, Biden administration officials. Is it dawning on his aides, though, that this could yet jeopardize his very ambitious domestic agenda? Because you have had people both from the Democratic side of the aisle and the Republican side of the aisle say this was not handled well. Look, he's getting a ton of incoming criticism, as you indicated, from members of both parties, as well as uh, from American allies. Uh, but again, the uh, uh, staying power of that criticism is going to turn substantially on the success of this evacuation, which is now underway. In terms of the domestic agenda, what a senior administration official told me yesterday was uh, for all of the dunking they're doing on uh, President Biden on Afghanistan, they recognize that their success is tied to his success uh, in terms of his domestic agenda, and they're counting on that feeling to sustain uh, this popular infrastructure agenda, which he's pushing. There is discord within the Democratic Party, apart from Afghanistan, on the tactics and strategy for executing that. Uh, but I think the uh, President Biden is counting on House Speaker Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, to uh, shepherd that through, and they're confident that they have not Uh, sustained damage that will prevent that from happening, at least not yet. Interesting, really interesting there. And as you said, it's in everyone's interest that, uh, you know, for Joe Biden, that this withdrawal continue uh, continue and be a success. Uh, Still have several more days, if not weeks, to get that done. John Harwood for us at the White House. Appreciate it. Now, Europe's top diplomat has called the situation in Afghanistan a, quote, catastrophe and a nightmare. The EU and other allies are, of course, racing to evacuate before those U.S. troops leave. 
The EU warns it may not be able to get all of its Afghan staff out. Now, the UK Secretary of Defence says its evaluation uh, scheme can continue only, pardon me, its evacuation uh, plan can only continue as long as U.S. forces, of course, are at the airport. Melissa Bell joins me now. Uh, You know, it goes without saying. They've been very transparent, right? We can't do this unless the U.S. stays at that airport. Is resentment growing with allies that they now have to depend on the U.S. to do the basic, get their citizens out, and that there's no guarantee. I mean, right now, I have heard from those allies saying that they themselves are trying to negotiate with the Taliban outside that airport. That's right. Like, first of all, just on that question of the airport, we've seen both the British and the French sending in special forces, extra forces, to try and lend a hand to the securing of the airport because the need to get their own citizens and those Afghans who've helped them out over the years uh, is so great. And of course, already it's been fairly slow just today. It is the third aircraft arriving here in Paris that will be bringing in evacuees from Afghanistan, this time carrying mostly Afghans. But we heard from France's Europe minister earlier today, Paula, who said, look, there are thousands more of these people that we need to evacuate. And of course, it's a race against time. How long can that airport in Kabul be secured in order that these evacuations uh, can continue. So yes, a fair deal of impatience, uh, a fair deal of disappointment uh, with what one European uh, politician has described here as uh, a far-reaching miscalculation on the parts of the Americans in Afghanistan. And one, of course, that has repercussions for the Europeans, both morally in terms of the people, their own people they're trying to get out, the Afghans who've held them, they're trying to get out. But beyond that, Paula, the fear that it may be Europe that bears the brunt of the consequences of this fast withdrawal. Uh, because, of course, you'll remember back in 2015, those images of the last migrant crisis so burnt in the heads of so many European politicians because it had so many profound repercussions for the politics of the European Union and the politics of their member states. So many, so many politicians, including Emmanuel Macron, very forthright. Uh, in their speaking of their fears about the next migrant crisis that might be looming, even before the European Union has come up with a fresh policy on how best to deal with it, it's still trying to deal with the fallout from the law. So yes, impatience, uh, frustration, fear that they might not be able to get out, all of those that they know they, they need to get out, Paula. You are so right to pull a, to you know point out the blunt talk in an opinion piece today in Le Figaro. The uh, quote is: "The more Biden and Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, speak to the media to try and justify their hasty abandonment of an ally, the more they sink, the more they ridicule themselves, the more they emphasize American shame." Is the reckoning here with Europe still to come, Melissa? Well, I think Paula, you're quite right. It isn't just about the immediate fallout. Uh, with regard to the people who are stuck in Afghanistan, neither is it simply about the next crisis, which could be the next migration crisis that hits Europe. It is also fundamentally about the hopes that had come in Europe when uh, Joe Biden was elected of a resurgence of the transatlantic alliance, of uh, multilateralism, of a multilateralist approach to international affairs. Uh, The disappointment here in Europe is palpable with regard to that as well. Uh, There had been another way of doing that things before the Trump administration came in. Many here in Europe had imagined uh, that there would be a new page turned. And I think uh, that's why this particular crisis has hit uh, with uh, such a hard thump. So many people, the idea that in fact, can the United States be counted on 
even now, and I think that's one of the things that is behind so many of the expressions of disbelief and of impatience that we've heard from Europeans, there has been a succession of meetings, of course, leading up to this meeting of the G7 next week, which I expect will be fairly fractious, given that there is on all sides, and specifically on the European side, both disappointment and fear about what the consequences of what was an American decision might be. Right. The words uh, America is back, Biden's words uh, already uh, wearing on those European allies. Melissa Bell for us in Paris. Thank you. Meantime, the IMF is freezing some $450 million worth of emergency funds that it was about to send to Afghanistan next week. The financial organization won't release the payment at the request of the United States. Now, the Taliban inherit, of course, a severely weakened Afghan economy that desperately needs international support. But a financial lifeline may not be coming anytime soon. Claire Sebastian has been following all of the developments on this. And Claire, there is a delicate balance here, right? Understandably, the IMF won't hand over the money to the Taliban. But there's a risk here, right, that this is going to hurt uh, Afghans in general. Yeah, this is a serious consideration, and this has been a huge challenge, I think it's fair to say, Paula, for the IMF. There are, in some ways, precedents for this. In, in February this year, they froze aid to Myanmar after the military seized power there. In 2019, Venezuela was cut off after the majority of the IMF's members failed to recognize the Maduro government. And that's usually how this works. It has to be uh, more than 50 percent of members or, or voting power within the IMF that, that, that votes not to recognize a government for aid to be cut off. But if you look closely at the IMF statement, it says... Uh, There is currently a lack of clarity within the international community regarding recognition of a government in Afghanistan. That shows you the situation we're in. This happened just a week, this takeover by the Taliban, just a week before a very large disbursement uh, of IMF funds around the world. This this put the IMF uh, at a very challenging position. And as you say, uh, it does potentially impact the poorest people within Afghanistan. Uh, Yes, this could, some of this could have gone uh, into the hands of those people. But of course, the concern was that it was going to end up with the Taliban. But now we have a situation where the Taliban essentially cut off from accessing central bank reserves. The U.S. has frozen those. There are no physical dollar shipments at the moment. We're hearing, according to the former central bank chief who's fled the country. And now the IMF cutting off funding, not just this disbursement of funds that was, that was set to happen on Monday, but there was another aid package to Afghanistan where part of it has already been dispersed. The rest of it will also be frozen. That could lead to the currency further depreciating. That could spur inflation. And of course, as we know, that hits the poorest people hardest. Absolutely. And any sense of where things go from here? I mean, they don't want they can't afford for Afghanistan to turn into yet another humanitarian crisis. Yeah, I mean, look, this is an economy that spent the the last two decades reliant almost entirely on foreign aid for its economic growth. You can't turn that around uh, very quickly, not even really in a matter of years. So you're hearing from the Biden administration, you know, that it's going to coordinate with its European allies, continue to provide humanitarian aid. It's not clear what that looks like yet. But in the meantime, people are looking to the longer term in Afghanistan to potential other sources of revenue. And one of those is the vast mineral resources that the country is believed to have worth over or at least a trillion dollars, according to, to U.S. military and geological uh, surveys that happened uh, about a decade ago. That includes lithium, it includes copper and gold, rare earth elements that are some of the key ingredients in things like electric cars, even iPhones. This is, this is considered by some to be a potential backbone uh, of the Afghan economy post-international aid. I heard from a former diplomat uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, who, who used to work in the, the Afghan embassy in Washington. This is what he told me. I believe if, if we are able to exploit these resources in a good manner, this could uh, turn the fate of the country um, dramatically. 
uh, economy-wise, politically, and also can bring uh, peace into the country. So a lot of hope rests on this, Paula, but a lot of challenges. You need the right infrastructure. You need the right expertise, transportation, logistics. Uh, this, this diplomat told me that he believes that the Afghanistan would need a foreign partner, and he hopes that would be the U.S., but there are a lot of question marks around this, and it would take probably at least a decade to get some of these, these potential resources out of the ground and making money. A decade yet. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. Appreciate that. Now, up next, was uh, the Afghanistan exit mishandled? The U.S. president says no. But a former State Department advisor says Washington should have talked to the Taliban sooner. He joins me next. Returning to our top story, at least 12 people have been killed in and around Kabul airport since Sunday. That's according to reports from Reuters. Now, des desperate Afghans continue to surround the airfield. The Taliban is stationed outside the airport, of course, and is firing shots to try and control the crowds. You see some of what went on there. Now, last night, President Joe Biden said the current chaos was, in his words, inevitable, and that he didn't think the exit had been a failure. Joining me now is Vali Nasser. He is professor of international affairs and Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins University. He served as senior advisor to U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Ambassador Richard Holbrook, from 2009 to 2011. And I have to ask you, as you see all of these extraordinary events unfold, what next for Afghanistan under the Taliban? How do you predict they will handle things going forward? I think they're trying to handle it differently than they did in uh, 1994. I think their goal is now to create a stable government so that, that they can control the country, they can implement the, the kind of uh, ideas they have for Afghanistan. But they're facing difficulty. First of all, they, they were a very effective fighting force of 75,000 men, but that's too small to control a country that is not ready to accept them even though they cut a lot of deals with different warlords and factions in the provinces. But in big cities like Kabul, that doesn't work. And we're seeing that they have difficulty controlling demonstrations, riots, looting, surges on the airport. Secondly, the economy in Afghanistan for two decades was really the U.S. military. All the money that was slushing in by American and other forces has disappeared overnight. And they have to deal in the short run with potential economic collapse, which is going to make life difficult for all Afghans, uh, whether they're peasants or, or city dwellers. So, so and they have won, uh, but now uh, uh, they're facing a completely different challenge than defeating the United States and conquering the country. You know, you point out they now do have to govern and sometimes it's not very glamorous, right? It is about getting people employed. It is about collecting garbage. It is uh, about making right. sure the sewage is working, even in some of these cities where they're now turned into fairly modern cities. How do you think they will continue to govern, especially since, as we've so many of us have pointed out before, the Taliban is not exactly one cohesive group. They can't even keep all of their fighters in control outside the perimeter of the airport, never mind in some of the provinces in Afghanistan. They've actually had more discipline than I anticipated. In other words, there has been a lot less looting, random killing, random execution, etc., that, that, that was their hallmark in the 1990s. And, and that's, the, that's the surprising part, that they've come to Kabul in a fairly disciplined way. But you're correct. Uh, either they will have to find a way 
to uh, shore up the economy, work with the international community enough uh, so that they, they are accepted and they can engage in trade and continue to work with moderate Afghans, people like President Karzai, former President Karzai or Abdullah Abdullah, who are still in Afghanistan, to try to get the bureaucracy going, try to get the, uh, the Afghans settled down, get back to work. If they don't do that, then Afghanistan is going to collapse into chaos. We're going to see uh, civil unrest. We're going to see gradually civil war. And we're going to be back to the worst part of Afghanistan, what we're worried about. I think what we should worry about is not whether the Taliban necessarily invites al-Qaeda back, but that they lose control of the country where nobody can stop al-Qaeda from coming back. And, and that's not a good scenario for us. Absolutely not. That vacuum of power is definitely bad news for everyone. I do want to, I don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to single out two countries, which I'm hoping we can lean on your expertise. China and Pakistan. Pakistan on the security issue, but China on financially. How do you think they going forward will now deal with the, the Taliban having retaken Afghanistan? They also want uh, Afghanistan not to collapse into mayhem. The blowback for them is significant. And, and that's the message they've been giving to the Taliban. They, they are trying to do the, look after their own national interest by maintaining stability. Same with Russia, same with Iran. The problem is that the United States is not talking to, this, to those countries. It has no strategy of how to work with those countries in a way in which that it would reinforce the things that it wants in Afghanistan but cannot do right now itself for varieties of reasons. You know what was startling to me? The message from China's foreign ministry was much the same that was the message today from the Taliban about on the day of uh, Afghanistan's independence. Do you think that China will perhaps know better and, and believe that this is too complicated of a mess to get involved in? Or do you think we will start to see them work a little bit more closely with the Taliban? No, I think they un fully understand. They're, they're different from, from us in the sense that they, they don't include human rights and those sorts of issues into their foreign policy. They don't believe other countries have to have a say in how they handle their own population. We're seeing that with Uyghurs and Hong Kong, for instance. But at the same time, they think they need to engage the Taliban. They need to give them promise of trade and aid in order to get them to do certain things. For the Chinese, the most important thing is that the Taliban don't become an inspiration and source of support for the Chinese Muslims. And, and that they, or that chaos in Afghanistan does not allow Chinese Muslims to set up shop there in order to attack China. So they're going to do their utmost to try to influence the behavior of the Chinese government, uh, Taliban government, and maybe give it enough source of support so it doesn't collapse immediately and for Afghanistan to basically become a state, a, a sort of a failed state, complete failed state again. Yeah, and you make such a good point. It is in everyone's interest uh, that it does not become a failed state in the weeks and months to come. Bali Nasser from Johns Hopkins University, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, coming up here for us after the break, heartbreaking pleas for help to try and escape Afghanistan. We'll hear from a former interpreter who's been helping comrades with visas and now feels he's powerless to help. Hello, I'm Paula Newton, and we are returning to our top story and a declaration of victory by the Taliban in Afghanistan. In an Independence Day statement, the Taliban announced they defeated, quote, the powerful and arrogant United States. Meantime, Reuters is reporting at least 12 people have been killed in Kabul since the Afghan capital fell to the Taliban Sunday. President Biden, meantime, is vowing to get 10,000 remaining Americans 
out of Afghanistan. Clarissa Ward is live for us in Kabul with the very latest. I mean, Clarissa, you were on the ground there outside the airport yesterday. You must really be incredulous when you hear the fact that there are not only thousands of Americans and then thousands of other citizens from those allied countries to get out of Afghanistan still. But of course, all those Afghan citizens who right now believe they're being hunted down by the Taliban. Well, I, you know, it's it's a crisis. It's a crisis. It's chaotic. It's uh, inhumane. Uh, thousands and thousands of people essentially camped out outside the airport trying every day to get inside and they're being beaten back as we saw for ourselves by Taliban fighters with truncheons and whips who are firing live rounds of ammunition into the crowd. Uh, We know of people who've been injured, some even killed. Reuters reporting more than 12 dead in the chaos at the airport, Uh, some of them being killed in a stampede because of the size of the crowds. And there's absolutely no sense that those Afghans who are who are sort of trying to run the gauntlet to get into the airport are being allowed in. We've heard of a trickle, maybe a handful uh, that I've heard of in it today who have been able to get past the multiple layers. Once you get past the Taliban, then you have to get past the Afghan commandos, special forces who are working closely with the U.S. Then you have to get past the U.S. or the Brits. And so it really becomes a near impossible task And there's no sense right now that there's any plan in place to try to streamline this process, to try to organize it, make it more orderly, or to stop people somehow from uh, pouring in as part of this deluge that continues to arrive at the airport. You know, what's been so startling, Clarissa, is that everything that you're saying is so starkly juxtaposed to what Joe Biden was saying. Even though the Pentagon briefing yesterday uh, by U.S. commanders was incredibly sobering, do you see a way that what Joe Biden says will be, we'll be there until we get the last American out, we will do what we can? Do you see any way that that can happen as long as they restrict their, uh, you know, their location, their security to the perimeter of the airport, and that's it. Well, I think the Americans will probably get out, although it's hard to see how it would be done by August 31st, uh, realistically. Uh, You heard President Biden talking about how you'd need to get evacuations up to 5,000 a day. I believe it was about 1,800 yesterday who were evacuated. So that's, uh, you know... It's a significant number, but it's nowhere close to where it needs to be if the job of getting Americans out is to be completed by the end of the month. But then the real question, of course, becomes, what about all the Afghans? What about the tens of thousands? Uh, Joe Biden said that 80,000 was too high a count. He put it closer to 50,000. Even so, 50,000 people, that's an enormous amount. And how are you going to do that after U.S. forces leave? And how, as you rightly point out, Paula, can you do it when U.S. forces can't provide any safe passage uh, to people to even get into the airport? So there's a multitude of questions, and I think a lot of frustration here on the ground that none of those questions were really answered by either President Biden's speech or anything that we've seen coming out from the U.S. military either. Before I let you go, Clarissa, I mean, obviously millions of Afghans right now wondering what's next. We have heard of pockets of resistance and whether it's Khost or Jalalabad. Is there a sense that people are mounting some kind of a resistance or, or is this really resignation now that the Taliban will run Afghanistan? I, I think we're seeing real acts of courage. 
Um, I think resistance might be too strong a word, although I will say today, Paula, right here in Kabul, uh, a lot of young people went out carrying Afghan flags and one large Afghan flag because today is Afghanistan's Independence Day. Um, they were ultimately met with um, Taliban fighters who were shooting in the air to try to disperse the crowd. But the bravery for them to even go out and attempt that in the first place and given that they were met with bullets, the question becomes, does anyone have the guts to do that again? Um, you know, I very much hope they don't because it would be horrifying to see any more bloodshed in this scenario. But the Taliban says one thing, Paula, they say you can fly whatever flag you want and we'll protect women's rights and we'll protect Shiite religious festivals. But I think slowly there is a creeping feeling that their true colors will emerge and that their rule may be as draconian as that which people experienced here in the 90s. Yeah, and as you've pointed out to us for several days now, Clarissa, that is a real risk, no matter what the Taliban has been saying in public. Clarissa, so grateful to you to be there on the ground for us, and we'll continue to check in. Appreciate it. Now, in amongst those trying to leave the country are, of course, as Clarissa was just saying, Afghans who've put everything on the line for U.S. forces and obviously other workers for other allied nations in Afghanistan. Now, it hasn't just been interpreters, right? It's been cooks, cleaners, mechanics, even laundry workers who now fear repercussions by the Taliban. And you have to know that those fears are real. The U.S. nonprofit charity No One Left Behind has received really countless pleas for help. Ishmael Khan is a former interpreter for U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and he's a visa ambassador with no one left behind. I cannot imagine how excruciating this is for you. We are all mere spectators to what is going on and the challenge of trying to get those people out of Afghanistan right now. You know, the New York Times is reporting that the U.N. says the Taliban is already actively looking for those who help the U.S. and other allies. I mean, as I was just saying, it contradicts everything the Taliban has said. What are you hearing from people? Uh, uh, thank you for having me. I, I definitely hear the same thing. Everyone has fear uh, so what the Taliban did, they asked people not to get out of the house at 9, 9 p.m. That's when they go after people. They knock doors, they get into the houses, and, and they take people out. It is, uh, I don't understand why would people still believe Taliban that they would be, they have changed. They have not changed. We have seen it when they took our uh, spin bulldog in Kandahar. They went to door to door, start taking people out of their houses and, and they, they kill them. They will do that. Their, their true colors will come out. People will see it. The only reason they don't do it right now because the entire world is watching and, and they don't want to, to get under that pressure from the entire world that, hey, this, and, and, and they will be in, 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 a, in a terrible situation. So that's why they have been changing their policy and, and having this softer, softer approach. And what is your worst fear about what will happen to many of these people when, you know, the glare of the international media is off them? Uh, everyone is going to die. That's, that's the fear. And it's a real fear. That's why I've been pushing it to everywhere. Like, please help us out. Get these heroes to safety. It's a matter of life and death. Don't trust it's, they are worse than the 90s, and you will see it. The people on the street, they speak the language that even Afghans don't understand who they are, where they came from. The, 
I, I wish that the, that the people would understand and help every single person out. And I wish that the, the administration would uh, have all the, 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 the army stay there until the last person is out. And to that end, what have you heard from people who are trying to get to the airport, whether they're in Kabul or other parts of Afghanistan? I mean, it's been harrowing. I've been on social media just seeing some of the fear and the terror and the frustration that they describe. I mean, what have you been hearing? Uh, uh, I was up till 3 a.m. last night uh, because people are calling me. They're going to the airport, but there is nowhere they could make it. And, and they had to go back. They, they, it's, it's a chaos. It's almost impossible even to get to the airport. We're looking at pictures right now from just outside the airport. I mean, what's their next plan, Ishmael? What, what, is there a plan? And do they continue to have confidence in what Joe Biden says about come to the airport and we will get you on an airplane? Uh, for them, they, for the people who get their, the emails and phone calls, they do everything possible to, to get in there. But it's, it's the crowd, uh, not only the crowd, when they get to the gate, uh, the, the Taliban, they don't let them in. They're asking them that the, someone needs uh, to come out from the airport to get you in. And that's, that, that's, I don't think that they have any plan in place to, to get that. Uh, so I don't know what their plans are, how are they getting everyone in. Describe, you know, you're in Seattle right now, you're safe. Describe how you feel. You know, you must feel helpless in the sense that you, you can't do anything, even though you are sitting in the United States right now. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I've never been in this situation in my entire life. Been through a lot of difficult times, but this is something that you are, like I'm drowning and I'm trying to grab to anything. I've been calling and emails and talking to a lot of people. Uh, I, uh, the, the veterans that helped, that they fought in Afghanistan, they're calling me for help to get their interpreters out. The system that they put in place, I guarantee you, if you ask the State Department, they would not even know what, what they are doing. The system that they put in place, it's super slow. It's not working. They don't have a contingency plan. Like it's, it's, it's a chaos. You ask anyone. They, they don't know what their plan is. They're just, they're just shooting arrows in the air. And it must feel like that because they've been trying so many of them for so many months, even years, and now it's come to this. They've literally taken a piece of paper to the airport and begging people to let them in as the Taliban threatens them on the outside. Ishmael Khan, we wish you every luck in all of your work. I know you are trying desperately to get more people to the airport, but obviously to talk to U.S. colleagues as well to help. Ishmael Khan there for us uh, in Seattle. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Now, the futures of so many people in Haiti are also uncertain after Saturday's earthquake. Just ahead, we'll take you to a hard-hit town where locals say they've yet to see any help. Think about that from their government. The Prime Minister of Haiti, Ariel Henry, is urging his country to unite in order to rebuild. Now, the death toll from Saturday's earthquake stands at nearly 2,200, with more than 12,000 injuries. The quake toppled tens of thousands of homes, forcing families to sleep outside still. 
Then Tuesday, a tropical storm brought heavy rains and mudslides that blocked roads. Now, Mr. Henry underscored his government's efforts to help affected areas. But as Matt Rivers now reports, five days after this earthquake, there are communities who say they still haven't received any help from the central government. Driving into rural Haiti is not easy. Miles and miles of tough, unpaved roads But it's at the end of those roads where some of the worst damage from this earthquake lies. This is Karai, a fishing town of 30,000, where hundreds of structures have been destroyed. Kylen Richard lost everything when the ground shook. I lost my business and my home, she says. I have six kids to send to school, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Hers was just the first home we saw. Up the street, we couldn't drive past this home because, like so many others here, what remains could collapse at any moment. So these guys behind me aren't professionals. They're just locals with hammer, wood, and nails trying to figure out a safe way to bring that severely damaged building behind me down to the ground. They told us in the nearly five days since this earthquake happened, they still have not had one representative from the central government show up. It's a tough place to get to, but as some pointed out to us, we managed to do it, so why hasn't the government? Anger, a persistent sentiment from many. This man's family was injured when their home collapsed. Do you think that the government can come here and help you? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think so. So you're not waiting for them? No. No. And are you frustrated with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very frustrated. I'm very frustrated. Some blame corruption and a lack of will for government inaction. There's also the recent assassination of Haiti's president, gang violence, and a lack of quality infrastructure possibly at fault. This bridge in the city of Jeremy, in rough shape before the earthquake, now so damaged that heavy trucks like these, loaded down with aid, cannot cross supplies sometimes hand-carried. No matter the reason, the reality persists. People in need are growing increasingly desperate. I need help, she says, and no one is helping me. So far, it's only God who I think will help me. The place where she might pray for that, the church in the town center, also destroyed. Thankfully, fewer people died during this earthquake compared to previous similar quakes. Imagine, as one person told us, if it had happened on a Sunday morning when church was full. And we did reach out to Haiti's central government asking, have you sent representatives to Karai to see the hundreds of of structures that have been destroyed? Uh, What are you planning on doing to try and make the lives of people affected by this earthquake better? They did not respond to our requests for comment. Matt Rivers, CNN, Jeremy Haiti. Coming up for us, too few planes, too many desperate people. Frustration over the slow pace of the Kabul evacuation is growing. Hundreds of Afghanis are now making it out. That story, coming up. NATO member nations are intensifying their efforts to evacuate Western citizens and, of course, vulnerable Afghans from Kabul. Now, the Pentagon says its goal is to fly out as many as 9,000 people a day. The U.K., meantime, hopes to ultimately airlift 1,500 people from Afghanistan per day. But the U.K. Defense Secretary is pushing back on reports that some flights from Kabul have left with few people on board. Now, we have to say our own Nick Payton Walsh says he witnessed that. 
In the meantime, the chaos in and around the airport is only making the evacuation effort more difficult. Reports today say at least 12 people have been killed in and around the airport since the Taliban took control of the city Sunday. Lenny Giocos joins me now from Dubai, where a U.K. flight from Afghanistan did land earlier today. And I'm sure, Eleni, there was a measure of relief for so many, but there must be also apprehension about the people who haven't been able to get out. And of course, what comes next if you do manage to get out? Absolutely. Look, seeing uh, the expressions on the passengers' faces, uh, so many numb, just completely expressionless. It was truly fascinating to see. And of course, we know those images from Kabul airport and how tough it must have been to even get onto that flight. But I've just come back from Dubai World Center Airport and um, we saw an RAF aircraft landing. We also saw one taking off. Uh, The UK embassy here in the UAE says that they've already helped 1,600 evacuees from Afghanistan that have come through the UAE and then en route to uh, the UK. What happens when they arrive? They are then assisted. They're given medical assistance. We saw lunch boxes given to people. And unfortunately, one of the, the saddest things that we saw today was people holding uh, plastic bags, garbage bags with their belongings. It kind of gives you the sense of the urgency that they had to try and leave Afghanistan. Um, the UAE also says that it's been partnering with international agencies and partners to try and help with relief efforts from Afghanistan. This specific airport had been mothballed last year because of the pandemic, opened up specifically to facilitate flights from Kabul. Um, The UK says that they are going to be um, using uh, the Dubai airport um, in the coming days to try and get those evacuees out. Who are these people? They are eligible Afghans that obviously are visa and permit holders, as well as British citizens. And I have to say, I mean, seeing this military aircraft, you've got to understand this is a C-17 It is used for combat. It's used for uh, peacekeeping and humanitarian um, efforts as well. So this is not a comfortable passenger flight. And absolutely the only semblance of hope I think I saw was toddlers and children running around, playing, not really understanding what was going on. But let me tell you, this was not uh, a normal scene in a normal terminal. No, and as you were talking, we saw those garbage bags on the tarmac. Uh, We also, of course, saw children uh, who are clearly not not knowing what is going on, but truly relieved. Eleni, thanks for that update. That's it for this show. You are watching CNN Connect the World is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.